If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn them to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 7. We're uh, finishing up an incredible uh, look at the Sermon on the Mount. And quite frankly, it's uh, my pleasure to finish this last uh, message uh, before I I, uh, transition or we transition to Craig as our new pastor. It is one of those uh, sermons that you just love to preach because quite frankly, um, it represents most of what I've tried to share throughout the history of, of our ministry together. Uh, let's go over a little bit of a background here. Let's begin reading back in verse 43, last week's message, to set the stage contextually of what today's message is about. And today's sermon is just simply God's example of what great faith looks like. Beginning in verse 43 of chapter 6 says this, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person now, the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person now, the evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Jesus gets to this reality of whatever you claim uh, as far as your beliefs, ultimately your life will reflect it. And it comes from the heart and expresses itself in other manners, especially speech. Verse 46, he goes further. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I shall show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house and dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it was well built. Those who have trusted in God and have built their life on the very promises of God will not be shaken. But the one who hears and does not do it is like a man who built his house on the ground without a foundation and the stream broke against it and immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. Notice it is not within our control to deal with the realities of the difficulties of this life, but we can control the very foundation on which we will live and how we face those difficulties on the promises of God. And so it introduces us to this verse, verse 1 of chapter 7, which I believe is simply a continuation in the example of what the entire Sermon on the Mount is about. And let me give you the context geographically. It takes place here near the northern part of Israel, near the Sea of Galilee. And if you can look at the very top, there is a word that's underlined in red called Capernaum. It is a city right by the Sea of Galilee. Right to the north of that is where we believe the Sermon on the Mount took place, or called the Mount of Beatitudes. And this city of Capernaum still exists today, though in ancient ruins. And this is where Jesus actually walked and preached and taught a good amount of time. And that's where this story occurs. It, it's a real place, real location. And if you can see at the very top, there's that blue That blue is not sky, but that is the the Sea of Galilee, so it's overlooking the sea. It's this amazing place to stand there and realize Jesus walked here. It's kind of hard to think about it, and maybe sometimes when we read about Jesus in the Bible, it's hard to even believe that he truly existed, but this is where he walked and talked and preached. And so that is the setting of the text today. 
It is dealing with a, a centurion who has a sick and dying, maybe bondservant or even slave, and he comes to Jesus in faith and asks them if he would heal his servant. But that is just the background regarding the location and is the background regarding the message. But I would like to, to share something with you, if I can, maybe about your background. Because one of the greatest joys that I've had in this ministry is not inside these walls, but outside these walls. And outside these walls, when I talk to people about faith, even uh, believers or maybe people that have walked away from God personally or unbelievers, talking to them about their beliefs. And what is great is people are really raw and honest. It moves what I'm about to take today as far as a teaching. It moves from just simply a teaching, but to real life, real people who are hurting real people who have maybe lost faith. So I have just a, a quick video that I would like to show you, and it's about faith. Just simple man on the street asking real people about their faith and have they lost faith. Do you have faith in? Faith in my religion, faith in my family, faith in humanity. A supreme being. I have faith in God. What? Well, I don't see him, but I see things around me that are created by him. I have faith the sun's going to come up tomorrow. Why? Because it always comes up. What does it take to have faith? You have to have a really good upbringing, a really a good understanding, a moral conscience. How do you have faith on a day-to-day -day basis? Um, it's tough. I don't know, it's like a mindset, I guess. Yeah, it's something you might have to like train yourself to do. Does it ever get hard to have faith, to keep faith? Yeah, sometimes it is. What do you do to get it back? Read my Bible. Have you ever lost faith? Yeah, definitely. How'd you get it back? I, I, didn't, I don't know if I actually got it back, or I just started believing in myself more, and I started doing more myself. What do you have faith in? God. You ever lost faith in God? No. Never? No. How do you keep the faith that uh, this is? Going to church. How does that help? Every news that gives me focus. Have you ever lost faith? Oh, yes. I've lived life. Still time to go, you know, yes. A lot of it to run into. A lot of this one. It's hard to have faith day to day. When you lose it, how do you get it back? Meditation, prayer, peers. Does it always work? Does it always come back? Not immediately. I mean, in the long run it does, but, you know, just because you've lost faith and you sit down for 10 minutes and talk to somebody or sit down for 10 minutes and pray, it doesn't automatically come back. I mean, it's a process. What do you guys have faith in? I have faith in God, even though I've never seen him or anything like that. Yeah, that, that works. Ever lost faith in God? I think, yeah, I mean, everybody does when things happen that are bad, you know, bad things happen to you and you don't know why, but I think most things always work out for the better. How does faith come back when you lose it? Usually probably when something good happens to you, because that's just the way people are. They complain about things when things are bad, and when they're better, they have faith again. Who do you have faith in? Nothing, no, me. 
What is faith? Hope. And? That's it. What do you have hope in or faith in? A lot of things, being happy. Things will work out. When things don't work out, what do you do? Keep hoping. I think faith is just the ability to, uh, to, to, to believe in something that you can't understand, you know? And, and it, it, whatever, whatever, however you do that, it takes faith because, I mean, it's really easy to question things that you can't control and you know, why you're here, so, I mean, just trying to make sense of it all like everyone else. That's kind of a tough question, man. I mean, I've, I don't think I've ever completely lost faith in anything before, but uh, I, I hope not to. <laughs> that seems pretty, pretty ridiculous, drastic. If you did, how do you think you'd get out of it? I don't know, I'll find something else to believe in, I guess, if, if that totally didn't destroy my... You know. That's a good question. Okay, cool, thanks. Thank you. Thank you. I don't know if you've ever actually had a conversation about faith with people who don't believe in God, but you see a lot of different thoughts and ideas of what faith is and how you get it or if you can lose it and how you can get it back or what you should have faith in. So the context also is not just our backgrounds and the people that we deal with, but what does Scripture say about faith? Because it becomes important as we're about to read this passage, for instance, in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5, 7, it says this, we walk by faith and not by sight, or we live by faith and not by sight. It is part of how we're supposed to live. And 2 Corinthians 13, 5 says this, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. And then the famous passage in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 says this, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. But how do we get faith? Well, Romans 10, 17 says this, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Let me say that again. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So if you're wondering about your own faith and where you're at, and maybe if you've really seemed down lately and, and can't really grasp what's going on in your life, Maybe uh, you would even say you kind of lack faith. I would just simply ask you, what of God's word have you heard and what of it have you done and what of it do you actually know and hidden in your heart? Because what happens is we oftentimes try to go someplace and receive faith because we hear someone talking about it, but when we leave, it stays there and it doesn't continue with us and we get in a habit of going more and more places rather than actually growing in a knowledge, in a relationship with the very God whom we place our faith in. So let's begin in verse 1, chapter 7 of Luke. It says this, After he, referring to Jesus, had finished all these saying, sayings in the hearing of the people, and hearing here is the key thing. You're going to see through this passage, it is revolving around hearing. Remember, faith comes by hearing. And then it also revolves around words. Are we going to believe the words of Christ? Are we going to do the words of Christ? And so that is the theme of this passage of faith, of hearing and responding. He says, and Jesus, or he, had finished all the sayings in the hearing of the people, and he entered Capernaum. Now, a centurion had a servant. If you're not familiar with ancient history, a centurion 
is a Roman soldier. He's not just a Roman soldier, but he is a leader of approximately 100 men. He is a very powerful, influential leader. He is an influential leader in the world-dominating government of their day. It, it, we have nothing in comparison today that relates to the Roman influence and power. It was a dominating government over the entire region. We have world powers now. They had a world power. And that becomes very important because it's really easy to have faith in a government. For instance, today, have you lost your faith in America? Have you lost your faith in justice? Have you lost your faith in the Constitution? It's really easy to maybe lose faith in that and allow it to bleed over into losing faith in Christ. You have to decide who do you have faith in? Where have you placed your faith? And this centurion could have placed his faith in Rome. Rather, there's this crazy reality that we're about to see. He had a servant who was sick. If you have any other translation, more than likely than the New King James or the ESV, it says slave there. We're not exactly sure. The Greek word doulos can mean servant, it can mean slave, it can mean bond servant. But whatever the case is, this centurion who was both very powerful was also very rich. He had individuals under him that reported to him directly. Yet, unlike earlier as Jesus taught, where the uh, rich man had received their consolation and their riches, he had not. He had not placed his, his peace and his hope in the things that he owned, but he had placed them in God, and he valued people rather than riches. So he had this servant or this slave who was sick at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. He valued people. Radically different than a ruler who values wealth and just treats people as a means to wealth. He valued the lowest of the low. It says, when the centurion heard about Jesus, once again this hearing, so the people heard and they responded in certain ways. But when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews asking to come and to heal his servant. This is amazing. You have a Roman Gentile sending elders of the Jews asking Jesus to come and heal his servant. It's incredible and you really don't really see the reality of what's going on until you go to the next verse, verse 4. And it says, And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him, earnestly saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation. And he is the one who built us, our synagogue. It's this incredible worldview that this centurion has. You have a Roman powerful leader who is a Gentile. And this is the amazing thing. He goes to Jesus. And in Matthew, the account of this, Matthew completely cuts out these Jewish elders who are sent to Jesus. Literally, Matthew says the centurion came to Jesus. 
completely cuts it out. It's much like this. If the president sent his messengers to you and gave you a message and asked you something or commanded you in some way, we would just simply said, the president came and said that to you. You would cut out the messengers because the president is this valued and powerful leader. Well, in Luke, he introduces the details behind the scenes and it's the elders in lieu of the centurion, but the, the elders are so conformed to the image of the centurion that Matthew just simply says it's the centurion. Let me put it real simple. And this, this is kind of mind-bending. We have a Gentile centurion who had such great faith in God. He literally made disciples out of Jewish elders who represented him to Jesus. So much so the centurion out of his own pocket built an entire building for them to worship God, even though he himself was not allowed in the place. He had that kind of faith. We know of one and only one synagogue that exists from this first century, and I've showed you pictures of that. It's in Gamala. It's in the north. It's just a little north of Capernaum. In the footprint of that synagogue is almost identical to the space that we're sitting in right now. But rather than seats here, it had kind of stadium seating. It had basically shelves, if you will, big shelves, or, or maybe big steps that would go along the sides, the back, and along the sides. It was stadium seating in this place. And the centurion, out of his own pocket, didn't contribute to it, but built all of it because he had such great faith in what he had heard. He couldn't even hear in the listening or the president presence of the preaching in the synagogue. He just heard it. Remember, they didn't have Bibles in their day, right? They had scrolls and they were kept at the synagogue. Yet this centurion had faith in just hearing and believing that he acted and not only acted, but had such a great effect that when he sent the elders to Jesus, they represented him in such a way that it was just simply the centurion who approached Jesus. Does that match your faith and mine? Well, this is the example that God records in Scripture for us that we're going to see of great faith. Notice this, they pleaded with him earnestly saying. So he had taught them and they had heard. Now they, representing the, the centurion, are pleading with God and speak to him. You see, this is how faith works. We hear God's word and we respond. And he desires that we come back to him and speak to him. And the expectation is that he hears us and that he will respond in our lives if we are obedient to him. Verse 6, and it says, and Jesus went with them. This is the, the amazing thing. Jesus responds. Our expectation is God should hear our prayers. He does listen. He does respond. We might not get the answer that we always want, 
But we are to place our faith in a God who loves us and hears us and responds. He went with them. Why wouldn't he? The centurion had heard, he had come to him, he had pleaded, he had lived a life evidenced of this faith and love. Why wouldn't Jesus respond? And notice this, when he was not far from the house. So Jesus was in Capernaum. We have no idea what uh, city or town, really, we would describe it more as a town. We have no idea where he had to go and how far he had to travel. It could have been multiple towns right around the Sea of Galilee that existed in that day. But he wasn't very far from the house. And this occurs. The centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. So what is going on here? Is the centurion just kind of a nut and he's, he's one, at one time he wants Jesus to come and another time he doesn't? Now this is the cool reality. This centurion is coming to Christ out of a very humble heart. I mentioned last week, a lot of the times as I challenge people to hide God's word in their heart, they say, well, that's very legalistic. I want more of a relationship. And no, out of the heart comes thoughts. Out of the heart comes a passion to hear God. Out of the heart comes a passion to do what God says. And so, out of this love for the Jewish people and the God of this nation, he calls out to God and he desires him to come, but he doesn't. And this is really important if you're struggling with your faith. He doesn't need the actual physical presence of Jesus to have faith. He just desires him to come and to respond. And so when the centurion had sent the elders to come, he, didn't, he was humble enough that he, he didn't even want to ask, but he sent others, and he didn't actually want him to come all the way to his house, but to just come near. Is that where you're at with your faith? Or are you in the place where, well, like, I would believe in God. I mean, I kind of do. I see his creation, but I don't really believe in him because I have to see and touch things to actually believe in him. But you know yourself, that isn't true. We believe in a lot of stuff that we can't see and touch. We believe in good and evil. Anyone does anything bad to you, you'll say that's bad. You can't see and touch bad. It's a judgment that exists, and you know it exists. Now, we believe in things that we can't see and touch, and I believe the text is laying out this incredible example of faith of, yes, we desire Christ in our life and his Holy Spirit dwells in us, but we don't need the actual presence of Jesus. We have his spirit and we have his word. So I don't believe the centurion was a nut. He was just very humble. Notice in the second half of verse 7, he says this, but say the word. Once again, we come back to hearing the message, responding to the message, and then relying upon the very promises and words of God. He says, but say the word and let my servant or slave be healed. That's all. 
Is that what you're missing in your life if you're struggling with your faith? If you're coming to church hoping to kind of get that spiritual vitamin boost and help you out for the next week, great. I'm glad you're here to be encouraged. But I promise you, it's probably not going to last in the face of all the terrible evil in this world. But remember, Jesus back in his Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon about Faith, he says, but do good. God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. We don't have to let that control our lives. It's there, it always has been there. But we can have peace in Christ if we remember who we are and what he said and how, how to live this life that isn't controlled by evil people and the things of this world and all the news and all the other things. We can have an anchor for our soul that's always been there. But he says, but say the word and let my slave or servant be healed. And this is this amazing faith. He says, for I too am a man set, in verse 8, under authority with soldiers under me. Let's pause there. Have you ever managed anyone? Have you ever led anyone? Did they listen to you? I've managed great teams. I really have. And the greatest teams that I've ever managed actually have moved beyond listening to me. It sounds good, like, or it sounds a little weird, but the teams that I've managed well are teams that I've influenced and taught and mentored and modeled all the things. And quite frankly, I call them high performers, low maintenance people. Because I can just sleep well at night knowing that they're doing all that they need to do. And unless there's a real problem, they don't have to come to me. They're just, they're going. They know what I've said and they're just doing it. It's incredible. It's, it makes life good as a leader. But then there are people that haven't quite got there. They're the high performers, high maintenance, <laughs> and they're coming to you and asking you all kinds of questions, and you love it, right? Because they're wanting to know how to do good and how to live life, and that's, that's awesome. But you hopefully move beyond that immature stage. But then there are the low performers, high maintenance, <laughs> where they're always asking a lot of questions, but they refuse to do anything that you say. And then there's the low performers, low maintenance, like they're not even interested in doing good and they don't, have, they don't desire to know anything you have to say, right? That, that's kind of the four groups of your teams right there. Maybe you've been on that low performer, low maintenance, and like, you know what, I'm kind of done with this organization. You're mailing it in. But that's, that's this amazing perspective about where we're at in our life with Christ. We could probably be anywhere on that continuum. But notice what the centurion says to his great team and the hundred men or so below him. And he says, I say to one, go. And then he asked me 30 questions about where he needs to go. No, he doesn't do that. He goes. And to another, come. And he comes. He doesn't ask, where do I need to come? He's figured it out, right? And to my servant or my slave, do this, and he does it. Remember that passage that we just read about good trees bearing good fruit? Because they have God's word in their heart, and they've built a foundation. 
Think about how powerful words are. Go and he goes. Come and he comes. Verse 9. Jesus' response to this message delivered by the friends of the centurion. Do you know, according to our knowledge, that Jesus maybe never even met the centurion? Never spoke with him. Never saw him face to face. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. He marveled at him. Do you realize faith occurs over 250 times in the New Testament and only two times in all of Scripture does it say Jesus marveled at faith? Here, in Mark 6.6, this is of the people of Nazareth that Jesus is speaking. He says, and he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Two places in all of Scripture that Jesus marveled at faith. One because of the faith and one because of a lack of faith. Verse 9 of of chapter 7 of Luke. He heard these things and he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he says, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Other translations other than the ESV translate that word such as so great or such great faith. Again, only two places in all of the New Testament does the English translate great faith. Here, And in Matthew 15, 28, it says, Then Jesus answered her, referring to this woman. He says, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. It was another instance of a woman coming wanting healing for someone else and just simply asked Jesus to heal without actually going. Two places in reference to great faith by Jesus in the entire New Testament does not require Jesus' actual physical presence. Jesus says, I have not even found such great faith in Israel. This is the example of the entire Sermon on the Mount. You know what's missing here? There is no... DNA requirement for great faith. You didn't have to be a Jew. Nowhere in the entire Sermon on the Mount mentioned Judaism or a relation to Abraham specifically. Nowhere in the entire Sermon on the Mount or this example did it have anything to do with Jerusalem. Did it have anything to do with your background? It was just simply living out and living for God and his promises. That's it. In a very real way. Not just going places, but actually bearing fruits. And Jesus uses this example, this crazy example of this powerful, wealthy Roman leader who had all of this to overcome. Do you know when my faith is the least? 
I bet it's you, it's the same as yours. It's not when bad things happen, but when things are good, when the money's rolling in, when I've got the nice house, my car's not broken down, lots of friends, lots of ability to influence people, right? I don't need much faith then, right? It's when you're at the lowest point when you oftentimes, and I oftentimes, turn to God. Yet, this centurion had all of that. He had the power, he had the influence, and he had overcome that. And believe it or not, you have to overcome that to humble yourself before God. And he did that, so much so that he had literally made disciples out of the elders of the Jews who were his messengers, bragging about the faith and the love that the centurion had. And yet he remained humble, simply crying out to God for God's mercy, and God responded. That's the great example in Scripture of faith. The question we have to ask is, is that us? It's a tough one. Well, as my last sermon here, I would just simply ask you this. If you've lost faith, or if your faith isn't what you want it to be, is it God's fault? Or is it yours and mine's? God promises to never leave us, never forsake us. He's always there. He's waiting for you either to come to him, maybe for the very first time, or to come back to him and follow him faithfully in real life, not just attending church and attending Bible studies, but living it out in every area, crying out to him, utilizing your finances, utilizing your life, your influences, everything for him. If you do that, life is good. No matter what evil people you run across, no matter what's happening in the country in which you live, you can really, truly live out faith in Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I just thank you for the honor and the privilege to have shepherded this church for 13 years. Lord, we um, take this time to celebrate your faithfulness in our lives, to praise you, to thank you for bringing Greg and his family in this coming week. I just pray this church would continue to flourish Continue to reach out and love uh, to this community, showing them light, not just in, in words, but in actions, in a reflection of their lives. Lord, help us to, yes, be bold in sharing the gospel, but to be especially bold in living it out. Lord, we love you and we praise you. I thank you for every person here, what they mean to me, their friendship, their love in my life, and what a blessing they've been to me. We just praise you and honor you. In Christ's name, amen.